0: This morning's sermon is titled, Grace for the Trickster. Grace for the Trickster, you see that up on the screen there. And you know, different parts of the Bible lend themselves to different kinds of sermons. And as Mick eloquently pointed out, this story is a little different. And so we'll use a slightly different uh, format in the sermon. And so what we want to do is briefly at the outset, recap the story. Just, just retell it and, and clarify a few points as we go. And, and I'll take maybe 10 or 15 minutes to do that. And if you're looking for an outline along the way, there, there really won't be one at that point. We're just retelling the story. Uh, and then after that, what I want to do is I want to draw out a couple of lessons uh, that I think we can easily apply to our lives. In some ways, this story reminds me a bit of a corn maze. Right? While you're in the midst of it, all you see is confusion. And you feel the coldness and, and you look down maybe and you just see muddy ground from where everyone's been tromping through the thing. And it's like, what, what exactly is happening here? But with a corn maze, you, you zoom out and from the aerial view, you can actually see the design in it. And so we kind of retell the story and then zoom out a little bit. And I think the biggest part that we'll see in the story is that God is the main character in this story. And his design is all over it, but only after sort of traversing the corn maze of sorts can you then zoom out and see exactly what God was doing and then how that's applied to our lives. So that'll sort of be our approach. If you're new to the Bible this morning or you're new to this story, you've not reviewed the book of Genesis, let me give you a brief recap of what's led us to this point. Jacob, you heard read about, and he stole some really valuable stuff from his brother Esau. And his brother Esau got so mad, he tried to kill him. And so Jacob had to flee for his life after he'd made his brother really angry. And so Jacob's mom, Rebekah, says, hey, here's the plan. I'm going to send you, Jacob, to my brother Laban's house. You go see Laban, stay with him for a little while. And this is where we pick up in chapter 30. Jacob is with Laban. Now, what the mom, Jacob, had said was, go for a little while and then come back here because where Rebekah is living is the land promised to God's people. And it was really important that this land promised first to Abraham and then to Isaac and now to Jacob is where Jacob would land. Well, that's, I guess that's a pun. He would land in the land. Didn't quite mean to say it that way, but it came out all right. Anyways, if you've been with us for a little while, you know that getting to the land is a really big deal. Right, that, that's been a recurrent theme throughout the book of Genesis, that God is moving his people to live in his place and under his rule. That's where God is, is sort of moving this story towards. And now Jacob has been with his uncle Laban for a little while, as mom had said. It's actually been 14 years. That's more than a little while. And Jacob says, hey, uncle Laban, I've been here a little while. It's time for me to have my wives and my children and to go home. The idea of the language that we catch in the Hebrew that's not quite so clear in the English is that this is a real come-to-Jesus kind of conversation. Jacob says, Laban, look, man, we're going to sit down and we got to go. Maybe they've tried to have this conversation a few times and Laban's kind of pushed him off and Jacob has been kind and not wanting to force the issue. And, and finally, things are coming to a head He says, no, we have to have this conversation. And Laban being a sly old fox, knows that Jacob has greatly increased his wealth. And so he doesn't really want Jacob to go, nor does he want his daughters to leave, nor does he want his grandchildren to leave. And as with most sly foxes, he'll say just about anything he needs to in order to get his way. And so he says to Jacob, Jacob, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed you. It's a very theologically confused statement. He's borrowing the pagan rituals of divination and saying that Yahweh has also blessed Jacob because he knows that Jacob worships worships Yahweh, and he's just kind of pulling at whatever he can. Maybe I bring a pagan ritual to say you're supposed to say. Maybe I can pull on a little bit of what the Bible says that you're supposed to say. Whatever the case, Jacob, I don't want you to leave. He's a little bit like Imagine Dragons, saying whatever it takes is what we're going to do to keep you here, Jacob. He says, name your wages. And Jacob, being a, a sly fox in his own regard doesn't respond directly to Laban as the way, as Laban has asked. Maybe Jacob hadn't yet read Donald Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, but he understood the principles behind it. He says, well, Uncle Laban, you do know that your wealth, your net worth has greatly escalated while I've been here. And he just kind of trails off. Let's Laban sort of figure out, okay, now what am I supposed to do here? So Laban starts to get annoyed, says, finally, look, what do I have to do? How do we keep you around, Jacob? And this is where Jacob hatches the plan and starts to explain the sheep and the goats and which ones are going to stay. And look, I don't think it matters how many times you've read this part of the Bible. You start here with your Bible reading plan to read through the Bible in a year. You go through over and over, and it is just confusing to figure out what is going on. Which sheep go where, which goats go where. You're trying to make a mental map, you're pulling out a napkin to draw it out, figure out what's going on, which of these are the speckled goats, which ones are the polka-dotted ones, which ones are striped, what's going on? Here's what you need to know. Jacob's asking for the abnormal animals, okay, the abnormal ones. The sheep are usually white, he takes the dark ones. The goats are usually dark, he takes the speckled ones. Plus, Laban's name means white, and so he says, Uncle Laban, your name is already on the ones you get to keep. I'm so honest. The irony is, of course, thick that Jacob the deceiver is trumpeting his own honesty as he's trying to take a deal that will undercut his uncle's wealth. It's quite the, the substory going on. Now, in that day, the shepherds would have been entitled to around 20% of the wealth. That was kind of the, the fair payment, they would have said. And this abnormal population of sheep and goats would have been, well, less than 20%. So Laban hears this deal, and he starts to get giddy. Mick emphasized it well. He says, good, this is a good deal for me. I'm getting a higher percentage of the portfolio than I usually would. And you're taking the less desirable portion of the portfolio. This nephew of mine is more naive than I thought he was. Where do I sign, Jacob? Jacob? That's where we find Laban. And yet, nevertheless, you sort of sense subtly, Laban knows that Jacob is a trickster, and he's got kind of, it's almost like the the ancient version of two-step verification. He's sort of got that going on to protect his wealth as well. So he signs on the dotted line for the deal, and then immediately says, I'm going to separate my flock from Jacob's flock, and we're going to separate them by a three-day's journey. We want these far away so there's no chance that Jacob can dip into my pool. And then the second part of this verification is he says, I'm going to separate the light from the dark to make sure there's no interbreeding going on because I don't want any speckled offspring coming out of this because those are the ones that Jacob's going to take. And so Laban is going to great lengths to make sure that he gets the best possible deal. And at this point in the story, we come to the next really confusing part, where we read about Jacob's breeding practices. They go to the troughs, he gets these three different kinds of trees, he's taking the limbs off and he's putting stripes in them and setting them out next to the troughs. And it's, I mean, it's just really a head-scratcher with what is going on here. What Jacob was using was an ancient practice known as maternal impression process. Maternal impression process. And what the, the uh, ancient shepherds thought happened here is if the female had a vivid sight during the pregnancy or during the conception, that the sight would impact the offspring and how they actually appeared. So if you saw something bright and speckled in front of you, your offspring would be bright and speckled. Now, I don't know how they came up with the theory. I don't know how they tested it. I don't know... Like, That's all a mystery to me, but that's what they thought would happen. And so that's what Jacob is doing here. Now, some theologians along the way, and this is just me sort of giving you interesting tidbits that I I think are interesting. I hope you think they're interesting as well. Some have speculated that God appeared to Jacob in a dream and said, hey, this maternal impression process, go ahead and use this. This is how I'm going to bless you because I promised to bless your offspring and so on and so forth. We don't read that anywhere in the Bible, Maybe God appeared to him in a dream, maybe he didn't. I think we should probably just be cautious in assuming things that aren't there because when we start reading things that aren't there, then we're you know, liable to kind of take things out of context and make them say what we want them to say. And So we, we don't know about any of that. It seems a little more likely to me that Jacob is just using the scientific theories of the day. He thinks that's the wise way to go, even if they seem bizarre to us and probably not that helpful in determining what the, the, uh, these sheep are going to look like. That's a bit speculative. Here's what we do know for sure. Jacob goes all out to maximize the amount of sheep and goats he has and the quality of sheep and goats that he has. He's very committed. He wants to maximize his, uh, both the quality and the quantity of his herd, you might say. And the plan sort of reads quickly. It's only 18 verses in the English. But what chapter 31 would say is this wasn't a quick ordeal. In fact, this actually took six years to unfold. And so as you may be carefully investing in stocks and bonds and mutual funds over a period of years, seeking to maximize the growth, that's sort of what Jacob is doing. Six years, carefully manipulating the breeding to get the best flock in every sense of the word. And it sort of plays out as you have this epic grudge match between two tricksters And the whole conclusion of the matter is heard in the last verse of chapter 30. So look back at chapter 30 and verse 43, and here's the conclusion of the whole match. Thus, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. The man increased greatly, it says. The New American Standard Bible says that Jacob was exceedingly prosperous. That's kind of where the whole thing lands, and that's what we read. And of course, it begs the question, what exactly are we supposed to do with this story? I, I understand it a little bit more clearly now, but what does it mean? Justin, you said that God was the main character. How do we see him as the main character? And I think what happens is there, there's two things that our eyes are drawn to. They're drawn first to the promises of God, and secondly, to the prosperous hand of God. The promises of God, the prosperous hand of God. And so what I want to do is take two lessons and and sort of state these things our eyes are drawn to about God and state them in the form of two lessons. The first lesson will simply be this. Trust God's promises. And the second is to recognize God's prosperous hand. Trust God's promises. Recognize God's prosperous hand. Let's start with the first lesson that we're supposed to draw from this story is to trust God's promises. Now, you can't miss this This as one of the major overarching themes of the whole book of Genesis, that you can trust the promises of God. And one of the most fundamental promises throughout this book is that God will bless his people. Now, that doesn't mean, like many Americans would say, that God will bless you financially. He will bless you with great health. He's going to bless you in the ways you want to be blessed. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that he's going to bless his people. We think back through the book of Genesis. At the beginning, God creates the world and then blesses the world. Pick up in Genesis 12. God creates a people for himself in Abraham, in the Hebrews, and then he immediately blesses them. There was the fourfold promise from God that Abraham would receive land and offspring. They would become a nation and he would be a great blessing, and anyone who blessed him would be blessed. That's immediately given, and it's in chapter 12, and then affirmed in chapter 15, and chapter 17, and chapter 22. It's reaffirmed to Isaac in chapter 26. This is a major theme throughout the book of Genesis that we're seeing continued here in chapter 30. And what we see is that Laban is greatly blessed because of the presence of Jacob. Just like God said in Genesis twelve three: those who bless you I will bless, Well, Laban is receiving a blessing. He's growing in wealth because of Jacob's presence. And yet there are threats to Jacob. Threats from within of his own wickedness, threats from the outside of Laban's deception, and yet God continues to bless Jacob because he said he's going to bless his people. And so we see for both of these tricksters, both Laban and Jacob, that nothing can thwart the promises of God. He's going to do what he said. Right? Laban cheats Jacob, or at least tries to, by giving Leah instead of Rachel, and yet through Leah comes the line of the Messiah. Laban cheats Jacob by changing his wages some 10 times. Right? If your employer is constantly changing your wages, flipping them back and forth, that's not a good thing for you. He's trying to cheat you. She's trying to cheat you out of something, and yet despite that, God continues to bless Jacob. You know, maybe you're hearing this and thinking, Justin, that sounds fine and all, but I'm pretty sure those promises don't directly apply to me, so what am I supposed to do with this? And you are correct. God has not promised you that you will become a nation with countless offspring, right? That, that's not what applies to us, so what are we supposed to do with this? When I say trust the promises of God, well, if you just zoom forward to when Jesus shows up, he preaches his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, probably the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the world. And do you know what he opens with? A series of blessings. It's almost a parallel to what happens here in Genesis 12. He shows up, says, blessed is the one who dot, dot, dot. Do you remember those? Blessed is the, are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who thung, hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed He says, here's the promise of the blessed life, the happy life. I I wanna zoom in on those for a moment here because Jesus in many ways takes our picture of blessing and reorients it. There's a way that we think we should be blessed. There's a way we want to receive blessing. And Jesus says, I'm going to reshape your thinking to what reality is, to where the true blessing is. He starts out by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. I might simply ask, friend, are you poor in spirit this morning? That's not a phrase that we frequently use, at least I don't. So maybe I could say it a little differently and say, do you think highly of yourself? You're rich in spirit. Right? of course, the first way that we demonstrate that we are poor in spirit is to say, God, I recognize there's nothing I could ever do to earn my way to heaven. That's impossible. I need your grace. I need to trust in Jesus' death on the cross to forgive me of my sins so I can have a relationship with God. If you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, that is the most important thing you can hear. And that's the most important decision you could ever make in your life to recognize that you could never earn your way to God and ask Him to forgive you of your sins. But of course, Being poor in spirit is not merely something that is applied to those who aren't yet Christians. For many of us, it's so easy to see our needs and our problems, our aches and our pains, and we miss others that are right in front of us. In a sense, we're rich in spirit because we see the things in our life and miss the things in others' lives. We're prioritizing ourselves. We become rich in spirit, thinking that our issues are more significant than someone else's issues. And, and of course, you don't ever say that or put it in a text. Yeah, I don't know if I have time for this. I think my issues are more important than yours. Like, I hope you don't say that in conversation to people. But subconsciously, that's what's happening. And just remind you of Paul's words in Philippians 2, that each of us should look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. It doesn't feel like it's Blessed. It doesn't feel like it's the path of the happy life to be poor in spirit and to consider the needs of others as more significant than our own, but that's what Jesus says. Will you allow his words to correct your thinking? He goes on and says, blessed are those who mourn. It gets interesting. There's not a next part of that phrase. It doesn't say what you must mourn over. He just says, blessed are those who mourn. And i ask you, do you mourn? Jesus says that's the path to the blessed life. Say, Justin, maybe I, I mourn when there's a personal tragedy. I mourn when somebody dies or when there's a really bad diagnosis that's received. I mourn with others, perhaps. But friend, do you mourn over your sin? Do you mourn over the sins of others? We read of David weeping over his sin. And maybe we're we're inclined to mourn over the consequences of our sin, the bad outcomes we don't like, but do you actually mourn the sin itself? I I recall a time in, uh, in junior high or high school, my dad had caught me doing something I shouldn't, And we got to have one of those not-so-blessed chats after school. And, um, you know, if if you've ever been in that spot, you know it's a really precarious position because you know they're going to ask what happened, and you're trying to figure out, okay, I don't want to disclose too much because if they don't know all of that, then I'm going to get myself in more trouble. So I don't want to say too much here. But I don't want to say too little either because then it's going to look like I'm being deceitful and concealing the truth. And so it's kind of a tough spot. And are they going to be angry at me? What's mom or dad's demeanor are gonna be, and you're, you're sort of playing this out through the day, trying to project what the conversation is going to look like, and I'll never forget what happened when we sat down on the couch that day to talk about what happened and the, the sin I had committed. My dad was crying. He was mourning over the sin of his son. He didn't come down heavy-handedly, either literally or proverbially on me, but he mourned over my sin, and some 20 years later, it stuck with me. The powerful reminder of not mourning just the consequences of our sin, but our sin itself against a holy God. Friend, do you mourn over your sin? Will you allow Jesus to correct your thinking that that's actually the path to the blessed life? He goes on, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I wonder if you hunger, do you thirst for righteousness? Okay, I know what it's like to hunger and thirst for natural desires. I'm familiar with that, the desire to eat or or sexual desires, the desire to, to sleep or to be warm at night, the desire of companionship with friends. Maybe you remember those old Snickers commercials, you're not you when you're hungry. Yeah, I long for the food there because I start doing crazy things when I'm getting hangry. And do you know what the Snickers commercial, you know what it follows up with? Snickers satisfies. And it's like the the most interesting knockoff on the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's like the Snickers ad campaign just read Matthew 5, like, "Let's, let's do a Weird Al style knockoff on this. And in an interesting way, I mean, Weird Al has some good stuff, doesn't he? We were talking about that this week in The Office, what's your favorite Weird Al song? And uh, the, the thing is, while it might be good for a little while to hear this knockoff that he has, it's not actually original, and it's not actually gonna last very long because it's not the real thing. And there's a satisfaction that this world promises that's not original, and it's not gonna last very long because it's not the real thing. It's not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Jesus goes on and says, blessed are the peacemakers. I wonder if you're a peacemaker. You know, it's one thing to not actively cause division. That's good to not do that. But it's a whole other thing to actively be someone who's seeking and making peace. Ephesians 4, Paul would urge the believers. He said, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Jesus in John 17 would pray that the unity among believers would be like The Father's unity with the Son. That's no superficial unity. It's a deep unity that's there. Are you a peacemaker? Because Jesus said that being a peacemaker is the way to a blessed life. So when we say the lesson is to trust the promises of God, we're recognizing that oftentimes the promises of God and what it means to have a blessed life is not what we expect To be poor in spirit, to mourn, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be a peacemaker. And this is only half the blessings. In fact, it's less than half the blessings that Jesus pronounced there in Matthew 5. You know, as I was reading and preparing this week, I'm thinking through this. And for me, and I think for all of us, it's virtually impossible to read this list slowly and to reflect on our life and feel like we've aced the test as Jesus laid it out. And so you say, Justin, I I see clearly the areas where I don't measure up, where I'm kind of defining the good life in my own ways, not in Jesus' ways. What do I do? You say, Justin, I'm probably not poor in spirit like I ought to. It's not that I look down on others. I'm just more aware of my own interests than the interests of those around me. You say, Justin, I mourn occasionally, maybe when someone passes away, but mourning over sin isn't a regular part of my life. I mean, maybe if I do something really, really terrible, but not like on a daily basis. He so not I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yes, I want to be a good person, but there's a lot of other things I hunger for more than righteousness. He said, so Justin, I'm not eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Yeah, I don't like division, who does? But I'm not actively seeking to promote peace and unity. Friend, if that's you at any point, At any point, what should you do? You should recognize, first off, it's a surprising path to the blessed life. These are not natural traits or natural desires. These are workings of the Spirit. And it's exactly what God has called his people to. So we go to him, and just as... God was faithful to Jacob, he'll be faithful to us to keep his promises. We go to God asking for his grace, to walk in obedience and trust his word that this is the path to blessing, even when it's difficult, even when it doesn't make sense to us. And we take his promises seriously. We trust his word. It's the first lesson from Genesis 30. You trust God's promises Here's the second lesson from Genesis chapter 30. Recognize God's prosperous hand. Recognize God's prosperous hand. For Jacob, there were many factors in his gaining wealth. How did Jacob prosper? Well, he certainly was a hard worker. He knew a great deal about animal husbandry Apparently, that maternal impression process, he'd been, you know, reading the latest journals or whatever they had back then, various breeding practices he's employing, you name it, Jacob is all over this thing. And you could look at your own life and recognize the ways that you're prospering based on how you've you've studied hard, you've worked hard, you've built the right connections, you've been networking really well, you've developed this product, so on and so forth. And all of those things are important and good. We're not disparaging any of those. But however God has prospered us, there's at least two right responses. And and what I want to do is give the principle at the outset and then sort of unpack it for a couple of minutes here. What does it mean to recognize God's prosperous hand? Well, response one, here's this, recognize his hand and give thanks. Recognize his hand and give thanks. For however God has prospered you, I'm going to recognize it's his hand prospering me and give thanks to him for it. It doesn't have to take a very long time to do that, but simply say, God, I see that you're the one who's prospered me in this way with this job or this relationship or or this pay raise or these children or whatever it may be. Thank you, God. I see that you're the one doing that. And then the second response is you leverage his prosperity for eternity. I recognize it's from God. I give thanks to him for it. And I recognize it's not merely from him, but it's for him. I seek to leverage it however I can for eternity. This is actually what we see taking place here in Genesis chapter 30 as well. So I'd ask you to look back at chapter 20, or not chapter 29, chapter 30, verse 29. Genesis 30 and verse 29. Here's what we read about recognizing God's prosperous hand. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and, catch it, the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. He recognizes it as God's prosperous hand. In fact, one commentator I read said the point of the whole narrative is to see that God is the one prospering Laban, and if we could borrow from chapter 31 you would see this ongoing theme of God's prospering along the way. So just let your eyes fall in your copy of God's word there to chapter 31, beyond what we read. You see verse 3, chapter 31, at the end of the verse, what does God say? I will be with you. Chapter chapter 31, verse 5, at the end of the verse, the God of my Father has been with me. Drop down to verse 7. At the end of the verse, God did not permit him to harm me. Drop down to verse 9. God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Do you see it over and over? The theme, God is the one who is with Jacob and is doing the prospering, is protecting him so Laban cannot harm him. This is the recurring theme. The passage repeats this over and over so we can see this is the main point. Jacob, like his grandfather Abraham, recognized that God was the one making him wealthy. You may recall all the way back in Genesis chapter 14, the king of Sodom tries to give Abraham wealth, and Abraham says, no, 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 I can't take it from you. You don't make me wealthy. God is the one who prospers me. In a sense, Jacob's saying the same thing here. Uncle Laban, you can try and give me stuff. You can give me whatever wage I want, but God is the one who's prospering me. So don't miss that, Uncle Laban. And from a human standpoint, we see our own efforts, we see our own plans, but we must recognize that God is really the one who's doing the prospering. And I think sometimes you can sit in church and expect the pastor to say something like that, and it feels a bit like a semantics game, and you're thinking, yes, Justin, but you don't understand what it takes to make our company move forward. You don't know the meeting I have tomorrow at 7 a.m., Right? And that's true, I don't, but it's important that we see this isn't mere semantics. Because when we fail to recognize that God is the one who's actually prospering us, it leads us to pride, it leads us to a lack of gratitude, and a lack of dependence. It's almost like you put in your GPS, you want to go somewhere. How, how do I get to pride, lack of gratitude, and lack of dependence on God? How can I get to that destination? Hopefully you don't put that in your GPS. But if you did, Genesis 30 says, the way to get there is to fail to recognize that God is the one prospering you. So it's not just semantics. This actually matters for your soul, for your life, that you walk with Jesus. It's not like this is something restricted to Genesis 30 either. So let me just show you a couple of other passages around the Bible that make this exact same point, that God is the one who is prospering you. Psalm 127 And verse 1, exceedingly clear statement. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Do you hear that? God says, you can be the most disciplined of all the disciplined. You can stay awake till 3 in the morning watching over the city. And if God is not the one doing it, it's in vain. He's the one prospering you. Or Proverbs chapter, chapter 16, verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Yes, it's good to plan. It's good to work hard. It's good to be strategic in what you're doing, but God is the one who's actually establishing your steps. Deuteronomy 8 is a wonderful passage here. I might encourage you to memorize this couple of verses. This is chapter 8, verses 17 through 19. If you're wondering what the next passage you'll commit to memory is, I I would encourage you to consider this one. Let's see what Moses writes in Deuteronomy 8. He says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Here's the point. Jacob's selective breeding was certainly helpful. He He was good at what he did. There's no doubt about that. But God's sovereign hand was the one that did the prospering, and Jacob recognized it. And our own hard work is helpful, our own planning is helpful, our own skill is helpful, but God does the prospering. I, I told you earlier today that I had done some uh, debrief interviews from our Send Me Costa Rica team. And, uh, and one of the team members was relaying to me how in Costa Rica uh, they had, had gotten sick. And, and I don't know if you've ever been in a foreign country and gotten sick, but that's, it's not a good thing. Right, You're in a different place with different people, eating different foods, and everything smells different, and the, the roads look different, so you're getting carsick everywhere, and the medicine they have is different. You, know, you can't find ibuprofen or anything you're used to. It's, it's, it's not a good place to have a stomach illness. And so this individual is telling me, I got sick, and we're supposed to do this English camp, and I'm feeling really bad about it because I'm not going to be able to serve. And they start treating this person in all the ways that Costa Ricans would treat you, these herbs, these teas, things that have never been tried on their body before and you're feeling a little nervous. And this individual said to me, they said, but I know it was the prayers of God's people that brought me back to health so that I was able to serve and do my part in the English camp. Was the tea helpful? I hope so, I think so. Were the herbs helpful? Boy, I don't know, I'm kind of skeptical of those. (laughs) The unessential oils were getting, getting put to work. But it was God who was really doing the work, regardless of what we think of our different medicinal treatments. And across the board, we got to recognize this. He doesn't always promise the health we want. His hand would have been just as good had he not brought healing to this person in Costa Rica. He doesn't always promise the life we want. But wherever we are prospering, we know it's his hand at work. And we've already talked about the principles of of recognize his hand, give thanks to him for it, seek to leverage it for eternity, right? Recognize it's from him, for him, and to him. Use the Romans 11 sort of language there. But let me just talk a little more practically on some of the things this looks like. Some of you have got a sort of social prosperity that is a remarkable gift from God. You've got an ability to make someone feel welcomed and loved and included, And God has given you a remarkable gift there. And in an age that is marked by so much loneliness and anxiety and depression, your ability to bring people into the group is a remarkable good gift from God. So recognize it's from him and seek ways to leverage that for eternity. Whether it's new people at church, whether it's people at church who have been here for a while and you're like, I don't know if you're connected. Whether it's somebody at work or somebody in your neighborhood there are some of you that have got a different kind of social gifting. It's not so much making a new person feel welcome, but people feel really comfortable sharing things with you. You say, I don't exactly know how this sign works. I'm not signing up to hear everyone's deep, dark secrets. And people just keep telling me stuff. Like some of you know, that's you. Like, yeah, that happens to me. Friend, recognize that as a gift from God because people are entrusting you with what's happening in their life and you have an opportunity to speak the truth of God's word into their heart in a unique way. So feel the difficulty and the pain with them and empathize with them, but also recognize there's an opportunity and a gift to speak God's truth here into their life. Leverage that opportunity, that relationship for eternity. Maybe these folks that are sharing things with you, they don't have someone speaking God's truth into their life. That's precisely why God has directed them to you. There are forms of financial prosperity that God gives. Maybe it's, you're good at making money through your job or through your investments, through any number of other means. Or maybe you suggest I don't feel super prosperous there, but I know That Jesus talked more about money than he did heaven and hell. And so I want to be careful to see whatever money I have as a good gift from God, and I'm going to leverage it for eternity. And so some of you can hear that and think, man, I've been regularly giving for some time, but I think I could leverage the prosperity God has given me for eternity more significantly. I should try to give a little more this year. And others, if you hear that and you say, Justin, God, it doesn't feel like it's prospered me financially. This inflation stuff, cost of eggs, is killing me, man. I I, I see what it's doing. We're feeling that as well. And for you, a major step of faith would be to say, I know God has given me some money. I want to leverage it for eternity, so I'm going to make a commitment to give $5 a month. It's a major act of faith. Say, that's what it looks like for me to recognize where God has blessed me, give thanks to him for what he's given, and to leverage it for eternity. There's all kinds of skill sets where God may have prospered you. You may be a gifted teacher. You may be able to dominate Excel sheets like nobody's business, like comes to macros and pulling stuff across sheets. Like you know how to do that in ways that I just don't understand. I've watched the YouTube videos and I'm still confused. Or you, you may be gifted in IT skills or as an electrician or as a plumber You may be gifted in graphic design or as a really good writer. Like there's all kinds of skills you may possess and you need to recognize those are good gifts from God. He's the one who's prospered you. In each of those ways, and give thanks to him for it. And then say, how can I leverage this for eternity? It's from God and it's for God. What we see in this story here in Genesis 30, the lives of Jacob and Laban, it's the same as our lives. There's all kinds of interesting stuff and sometimes uninteresting stuff going on, but the main attraction is God. It's not you, it's not me. These guys, they had their shortcomings. They were both tricksters. And I'm pretty well aware of my shortcomings, and most of you are probably pretty well of yours as well. There's, there's things I know, Justin, and I gotta work on. I'm not seeing growth the way I want to. But friends, if there's grace for those tricksters there's grace for you too. And if God can work in their lives and keep his promises to them, he can work in your life and keep his promises to you too. If he can work through them that they would see his prosperous hand in their life, then he can work through you and you can see his prosperous hand in your life. I'm reminded of the old hymn and I'll close with this. Remember how it goes? Nothing in my hands I bring Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. That's where it brings us. Father, I, I bring nothing in my hands except what you've given me. I trust you to keep your promises. I recognize your prosperous hand. I give it all to you. And I ask you to help me walk in obedience. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of your word that you've given. How it tells us the truth about ourselves, how it tells us the truth about life. It tells us how you keep your promises always. Even when some of these promises about the blessed life, they don't seem to make sense, they seem difficult and they seem upside down. We know that we can take you at your word and that your grace will sustain us. We thank you for the gift of your word that shows us that you are the one who does the prospering. That it's all from you and it's ultimately all for you. And so this morning we ask that you would strengthen us to see these truths and to act on them. To follow what you have given to us. To walk in obedience. Lord we know this can only happen by your spirit because these are not natural desires not natural to, lay, natural to lay down our own rights, but we ask for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.